Welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I'm AJ. And I am Gavin. Excellent, excellent. How are you, good sir? I'm doing well. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good, just not gonna lie, a little tired. It is extremely hot where I am today. Uh, I didn't realize how hot it was till I went to go run an errand for my parents just now. And uh, it is 106 degrees. Yeah, that's so, that's crazy. When I, I got I, in my car, uh, it was it said 104. When I got downtown, which is like 10 minutes down the highway, uh, it said 108. And then when I got back, it said 106. And then the official, I was like, I gotta look this up online. The official like weather uh, at the moment says 106 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so that is pretty darn hot, if I say so that's, myself. Yeah, that that's. Uh that's desert temperature out there. Oh, it, it kind of is. So, uh, for our listeners that uh, don't live in America and don't use Fahrenheit, 106 degrees Fahrenheit is 41.1 degrees Celsius. So that is pretty warm. By Jove, I'd say it is. Yeah, sounds very hot. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I am uh, in my air-conditioned condo right now. Excellent. Excellent. So, how's the weather there right now? It's it's uh, it's a little humid actually, but it's not that bad. It's probably in the probably in the eighties. I've got two fans going right now. Oh, but you have millions of fans around the world because that's how popular this podcast. Yeah, well, is. two fans are allowed to come in here and, and tell me what a good job I'm doing. It helps cool me down. Makes me yeah. feel cool. L- less nervous. Less nervous. Less body heat. Less body heat. Lower temperature. Yeah. Um. So I I don't know. I have actually prepared a question for today. Sure. I'm, I'm ready. Okay. Let's, let's so, see what you got, homie. So it's in line with the movies we're discussing. Mm-hmm. But uh, what sort of sequels that have had recasting uh, imposed upon it stand out to you? <laughs> is, that, is that a convoluted enough question no, for you? It, it makes total sense, especially when you think in the world of martial arts cinema is you get sequels all the time that sometimes just aren't related. They're in-name only sequels. Uh, spiritual sequels sometimes is what people like to call them. Uh, I mean, an example of what you might call a spiritual sequel is the whole SPL series, Sat Po Long, or releases Killzone here. Uh, those three films have nothing to do with each other, yet they share similar themes and motifs, hence why they're considered, like they are part of the same series and are spiritual successors other times you just get sequels that have nothing to do with the first one and it's in name only for example no retreat no surrender and no retreat no surrender 2 uh but then at least when it came to no retreat no surrender 2 and no retreat no surrender 3 you had to carry uh, carry over lauren avedon and then a lot of times uh people from behind the scenes as well but uh i thought you were going to basically say like the whole don the dragon wilson like resume or filmography is often sequel in name only well that he did a whole blood fist is one of the most infamous like eight part series that have nothing to do with each other uh yet are still considered sequels Uh, that's that those films should be recut into one long screening and made as though it's it as though it is a one actual story with like a multiverse well he would have a lot of uh different careers going on there you know (laughs) well actually i think the best example is blood fist one and two because they kind it kind of it is a sequel right he is technically playing the same by name same character jake but just completely different 
setting and like backstory and stuff. So that's a, that's an interesting one. But as for your question, like specific recasting, which goes very well with what we're talking about today. So especially within the Bruce Bloitation genre. But to take a step out of that, uh, since we'll be talking enough about that here in a minute, specifically like recasting uh, a sequel. Uh, now, are you referring specifically to just like new characters or a different actor playing the same character? Well, there, that's a great question. I think, I think you can take this question based on the two films we saw mm-hmm. in either direction. Right. And I'm trying to think of a good Western example where we had a sequel, like the same character played by a different actor. I mean, one of the best examples is the whole Jack Ryan series, right? We started yeah. off with Alec Baldwin in Hunt for Red October, and the next thing you know, you get Patriot Games with Harrison Ford, and then Clear and Present Danger with Harrison Ford, and then after that, I believe the next one was Some of All Fears with Ben Affleck, of all people, right? And then... Uh, John Krasinski John now, Krasinski in the TV show, precisely. Thank you. I was drawing a blank on uh, his name, and I, I love the show. He's wonderful in that. But... Uh, <laughs> We love him. We don't know. If we forgot his name, but yeah. we love him. He's great. He's great. Yeah, Jim, from the, Jim from the Office, and I don't even watch The Office, and I know that. Uh, let's see here. So, what's a good example? Let me think. I, I really want to give. A I mean, good... I, there, there there is only one true answer mm-hmm. because everything else pales in comparison. But oh. uh, I'll let you, I'll let you try to get it wrong. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna say the best. Uh, I'd say one of the the best ways they've done that. Well, because it's not the same character, but I'm going to go with the Kickboxer series. Oh, that, that is very true. Yeah, because Sasha uh, Mitchell was great, unexpected. Uh, they take it in this whole new direction, yet where it's still in the same universe, no question. It's just mm-hmm. the brothers had a half-brother that we didn't know about. So I'm going to go with that as one where they com- – but they also brought back uh, Dennis Chan, right, as Master Sion. Uh, yeah. Michael Cheesy did return as Tong Po in that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, obviously – uh, Even uh, the 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 reboot is is like within the kickboxer realm. It, 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 the well, yeah, because too. they bring in Jean Claude Van Damme as a new character, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I'm going to stick with I think the best uh, example. One of the best examples of that is the kickboxer series, and then eventually, by the time uh, uh, you get to number five, and they replace Sasha Mitchell with Mark Dacascos, uh but I mean, also, also the yeah. Bloodsport series is a great one. I thought Daniel Bernhardt was a fantastic yes. uh, change of character and pace. And obviously, it's kind of like it's more like a reboot in that sense, right? And the Sudden Death series. Sudden Death. Oh, God. <laughs> oh man, you may, I almost forgot about that. It was number yeah. one on Netflix for a while when it came out. It was, yeah. It was. As a, as a, I mean, a name. I mean, it, that that a film like that would garner so much traction because how well the first film did in the first place, right? Uh, so I, I agree with you completely, Sasha Mitchell. And I, I, I'll be honest with you. When I go back and watch the full Kickboxer like uh, arc mm-hmm. from from first to the reboots, my personal favorite is actually uh, three. I, I agree with you. Three is my favorite. Uh, no, it's it's interesting because number three is the one I remember the most because as a kid uh, I had trouble finding number two we're talking pre-internet mm-hmm. age here people you know you had to rent it on VHS and it was whether or not your local place had it so number three I caught on TV and so that's the one I've seen the most number three and four and then eventually I was able to find a copy of two uh, but I, I think three just sticks with me because also the huge jump in uh, Sasha Mitchell's abilities and we've talked yeah. about this for the first film uh, Sensei Benny trained him. And once again, we don't know how long uh, he had 
to train him. Uh, and also on top of that, Benny's style comes much more from his traditional karate roots, right? He's much more dynamic, flexible, a lifelong uh, journey of studying the martial arts and competing. So therefore he has these beautiful type kicks and incredibly fluid Western boxing. And so it, when you try to bring that same style in, to an actor who doesn't necessarily have any experience, uh, it's a little difficult, right? And mm -hmm. so in that first in the first sequel in number two, Sasha Mitchell almost looks a little kind of awkward. By the time you get to number three, he had actually switched to training with uh, Shooky Ron, uh, yeah. uh, our sensei's good friend, who I had the pleasure of training with for a while when he was in America a couple years back, uh, who's from Majiro Gym. He's from Israel originally, and that's back where he is now, but he trained at the very famous Majiro Gym in uh, uh, Holland. And that's when you see Sasha Mitchell have this straight up Muay Thai style, which was much easier for him to kind of learn. And not just that, he pulls it off really well. He looks, he does. He looks authentic doing it. And it adds this whole new element to the fight scenes. I think from, from a martial arts perspective, you've nailed the, the nail on the head when it comes to like the, the recasting or the rebooting of a series. Uh, when it comes to like overall production value, I, have an affinity for martial law too undercover mm. uh, and you know it, it's almost like an it's almost like they're trying to ignore the first film but not entirely because the the two if you see it's like martial law written really big and then the two is hidden in the w that's the uh, perfect example of the recasting of the same character yes because obviously they replace chad mcqueen with jeff wincott yes but and he's playing the same character and I think they almost tried to make that into a, a four-film series with Mission of Justice and uh, Martial Outlaw. I feel like at one point he's playing a Kurt in another film as well. Or they were trying. I, I read somewhere where it was all supposed to be like the the Kurt character from Martial Law. Anyway, well, you know what's even we've more gone down the rabbit hole. You know what's even more disappointing. So most recently, Cynthia Rothrock on the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast, uh, she gave a great interview, and once again. Uh, hats off to Ben Johnson who's able to he does these interviews with people that have been interviewed a million times yet somehow I don't know if it's just the setting he gets them to talk about stuff that they haven't before whereas a lot of times I, I love listening to these interviews or watching the videos but it's quite often the same stuff over yeah. and over again but in Cynthia Rothrock's one she discussed the whole like enigmatic era of her career when she was under contract with Stallone uh, which yeah. has always been something like nobody knew anything about it. it was she was supposed to do a movie with Stallone and that's all we knew well it was much more than that she was under contract with uh, I want to say it was Carol Co and then that contract switched over to Stallone's production company and then nothing ever came of it but she was offered China O'Brien 3 yes and had to turn it down she wanted to do it even under contract with Stallone because nothing was going on there but then they wouldn't let her yeah so and her so Hong Kong, like, her oh Hong Kong. what a bummer because uh could, and still in her prime at that same time. So could you imagine if we would have had a third China O'Brien film? And, and who's, I mean, yeah, it's like her Hong Kong career came to a, a glaring halt because of contractual obligations. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, you know, it, it's an absolute, I mean, it's kind of like an absolute crime because then from there she was, she was subjugated to the, the straight-to-video genre, which, you know, thank goodness for her because without her, I don't know if these films that we, like a lot of the films that I've watched and, and we've watched, would have ever been made or, or made with the kind of budget or like would we have even like honestly if that if this hadn't happened would we have even met dawn and yeah. i'm like i'm not you know i'm not trying to like you know uh, she she like, helped me. carry 
the straight to video martial arts genre for a long time. There's her and a select few, right? That we have to yeah. be very thankful for. But with her in specific, she yeah. brought all that Hong Kong experience and is another one of those ones that was able to transition between Hong Kong choreography and American choreography and make the best of both. Yeah. And her skills were just so fantastic that they couldn't be denied. Even with the most uh, basic choreography, she could still make it look good. I mean, it, you know, hearing that she was under contract with Stallone's company, imagine instead of Sharon Stone, Cynthia Rothrock in The Specialist. I don't know, like, Ooh, I know well, I know Sharon Stone brought a certain aspect to, to those films, but, I mean, come on, just, just a little more action. No, I, nothing wrong with that. I got to tell you, though, that... Uh that, that hot and heavy scene in <laughs> The Specialist. Woo-wee! Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's an intense one. I remember, you know, first seeing that probably junior high or so and being like, whoa. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I, I, think, I can't imagine anyone but Sharon Stone in that role. Well, now, no, had, yeah, I, had I, she I, done action in it? Of course, but it's just... Yeah. Uh, I feel like Sharon Stone doesn't, doesn't get enough credit because... Uh, I, not, not, I shouldn't even say like I'm a huge fan, but she people forget how many classic era action films she was featured in. Oh, yes. Uh, action Jackson, Above the Law, uh, Total Recall, mm-hmm. uh, The Specialist. And in all these films, no matter how small her role is, she brings such uh, a unique dynamic. Because, you know, for example, let's look at Above the Law and Action Jackson. She's kind of playing a similar, the wife character, right? The, the mm-hmm. innocent one that's caught up in her husband's uh, chaotic world. And in, in one movie, it's her husband, Nico, is a cop, a good guy. In another one, it's uh, Coach, who Craig, <laughs> yeah, Craig T. Nelson. is Craig T. Nelson, who's just insane. You got to love him in that movie. But then she jumps into Total Recall, and she's this badass uh, fighting chick, right? So... My hat's off to Sharon Stone. Oh yeah, I mean, you, you could, you, if you were gonna rewrite, it would have to be a rewrite for yeah. for the specialist. But, uh, um, but anyway, I guess we digress. So yes. we're talking about something, uh, some very special films. Well, today. we what we are talking about today. But for, so first was what we are going to be discussing is the double Bruce Bluetation screening at the New Beverly Cinema, which, as of recording this episode, was uh, five days ago or so on Monday. Mm-hmm. And uh, where they showed the extremely rare, very rare, one of the most rare kung fu films, uh, The Big Boss Part 2, which is the quote-unquote official sequel to The Big Boss starring Lo Lee. And then also is a double screening, that and Fist of Fury Part 2, the uh, or Fist of Fury 2, the unofficial but kind of official sequel to Fist of Fury because technically the official one was New Fist of Fury which Golden Mm -hmm. Harvest did but we'll get into that later however coincidentally enough this same week we have had quite a bombshell drop regarding the legendary Bruce Lee yes that bombshell being that the estate of Robert Baker and for people who don't remember Robert Baker was a student friend and co-star of Bruce Lee's in Fist of Fury. He played Petrov, the Russian martial artist. Well, uh, and he passed away in the early 90s. Uh, his daughter is now auctioning off a series of letters mm-hmm. that were written by both Bruce and Linda addressed to Bob. And as everyone knows, Bruce Lee, or maybe you don't know, Bruce Lee was a prolific letter writer. 
So mm-hmm. much so that the Bruce Lee estate actually released a book a couple years back called Letters uh, from the Dragon or Letters of the Dragon. Uh, it's a great book, and it's just a book filled with his letters to all of his friends and family, right? Well, he wrote Bob Baker extensively. And it's very interesting because their whole relationship has always been very mysterious. Not a whole lot is known about it. And it's kind of like, well, how did this guy get cast in Fist of Fury and so forth? Well, uh, and now it's like, wait, so there's over 50 letters? How often was he writing this guy and why? It had been speculated for years that, and more than speculation, it was kind of known that Robert Baker was Bruce's dealer. However, what dealer meant, everyone assumed, was marijuana and hashish, which has been well documented, and we know Bruce uh, used both. Is the 60s, 70s, everyone in that scene did, right? And once again, nowadays, weed is no big deal. Uh, But what these letters reveal is that there was far more going on than just hashish and weed. Uh, That Bruce spent a significant amount of time, what appears to be uh, money, and effort in uh, obtaining and using cocaine. And so what starts off as kind of through the series of these letters as a a kind of recreational type thing becomes a habitual uh, occurrence so much so that he's writing at some points, it's like on a weekly basis, trying to procure cocaine from uh, Robert Baker while he's in Hong Kong. So it's pretty much the last year of his life. It's kind of like, Bruce Lee goes off the rails and really develops what can be called uh, an addiction. You know, he had a substance abuse problem, it appeared. And does this take away from everything that Bruce Lee accomplished and what we loved about him? Absolutely not. But now what it does is it shines a light on the last year of his life when there was a lot of interesting things going on, Mm -hmm. especially with the side effects of any sort of drug addiction, but particularly that of cocaine. You know, the, the rapid weight loss, the, uh, you know, the supposed, as, as some people have speculated over the years, and it's been kind of hush-hush, is, you know, his, his temperament, mm-hmm. uh, which coming on and off cocaine, uh, never done it myself, but, you know, uh, just from the little bit I know, you could have severe mood swings, uh, paranoia, which a lot of people have talked about how he was paranoid during the last year of his life, and a lot of that's always been attributed to the stardom he received, going from, like, Nobody knowing him to, you know, the biggest superstar in Asia and him not knowing who he could trust and so forth. And then obviously the two incidents that led to his death, the first passing out uh, cerebral edema incident in May of 73 and then his untimely death in July of that same year where he died from cerebral edema. And uh, there was so much mystery around it for years because it was attributed to an equigesic he had taken or, you know, a a painkiller like an Advil or a Tylenol, which in the history of those drugs, there's never been a documented case of it causing a cerebral edema and killing somebody. And then in Matthew Pauly's uh, fantastic biography he wrote a couple years ago, his theory was that it was actually heat stroke and he Mm -hmm. had a lot of evidence to present and I was all gung-ho on that theory. However, now... If we look at it from Bruce having a uh, cocaine problem, it could have very well been what uh, possibly had led to his death. Uh, I mean, we don't know this. Uh, It could have been the overall effect it had on his health, and then it was something like heat stroke. Uh, I am no medical expert. I'm not sure, but if you want a great uh, 
analysis of the whole situation, uh, our good friend Sifu Alex at the Kung Fu Genius podcast, he did a whole episode on it. He rushed it together. Uh, he did a 30-minute review of a lot of the letters, not all of them, but he kind of the timeline of how it uh, went down and the history of him and Bob Baker's relationship and kind of the you also see the the downward spiral even by the way the letters are written like yeah. Bruce's beautiful penmanship and uh you know very coherent letters become almost scatterbrained right like something of an addict and it's kind of it's sad to see in that sense uh but and also unfortunately the the not just knowledge, but heavy involvement of Linda Lee in the whole situation too, which comes up in the letters. She obviously writes a lot of the letters mm -hmm. uh, asking about the shipments and so forth. And they don't even try to use code words. The closest thing to a code word they do occasionally is call it, well, they call marijuana the holy stuff, but you know, Coca-Cola. Coca yeah. yeah. But at the same time, sometimes they're just calling it Coke. And we know the letters imply that obviously a lot of Coke usage going on, that he had used acid and wanted to uh, try mushrooms. We don't know if that ever happened, obviously, but uh, maybe in some of the letters it does say that. I have not, you know, I've only read through the highlights myself. So yeah, it's quite so, quite the bombshell. Uh, so, what did you make of all this? So I, I have mixed feelings, mm -hmm. right? Um, part is, you know, by auctioning off the letters, I know the family has every right to auction off whatever they want from any estate. Part of me feels like it's, uh, it's, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I just really mixed emotions because are they, is it just for information's sake? Because it is very, it's, this information is important to folks like you and I and this, this whole, this whole realm that, that follows him so closely, uh, uh, Bruce Lee that is, but then also auctioning it off. Is it, are the, were the, like, could the Lee family have purchased it? Because they, they are very protective of the iconic, clean image of Bruce. Right, which is something you for know. the past few years that they've kind of, for lack of a better term, whitewashed. They've, yes. they've made him out to be this deity, to be this philosophical guru, civil rights activist. Things that he was quasi interested in or had dipped his toes in even, but wasn't really who, I mean, he was as a person. The, it just, it, and I guess, yeah, it, who are we to say? I mean, we weren't there. Uh, you know, we didn't know him personally. But when you the people that were actually around him the most, his friends, his students, when they talk about him, you see Bruce as this innovative, groundbreaking fitness and martial arts pioneer, uh, as well as actor and filmmaker. And uh, he did quite enjoy uh, and was very knowledgeable of philosophy and spirituality. Right. But the, the mean, Lee estate the last few years, the, the direction they've wanted to go with Bruce is is very interesting. They've they've kind of attacked anybody that seems to have a different opinion. And so when it comes to the auctioning of the letters, my first thought was, well, they released a book with all of his private letters for the public. So yeah. it's not like, because, you know, the argument they could make where these were private letters, you can't be showing those to people. It's like, well, yeah. you guys released a whole book of that. So you kind of opened up uh, Pandora's box. Yeah. I, I think it's just, it's just complicated. I mean, just even just the situation is, is, it's like muddied waters and complicated. But I think when we look back at all the accomplishments of Bruce Lee, to know that so many of the accomplishments came through these muddied waters makes those, can make those accomplishments more uh, 
powerful in some ways and Agreed. then also speak to the, the mysterious fall that he had it it his whole life is a lesson to us the the rise and the fall and the battle and you know the so the more information we have so i know we can we can whitewash anybody in history books but uh when you get the full story it actually uh, helps helps us grow as humans and as a society transparency is key just like i'm a big believer and yes we should have transparency even like in american history class that does not mean we get to pick and choose any race stuff you know some people are like oh well we shouldn't even be learning about the founding fathers and this and that and it's like no disagree because they obviously did fantastic things but sure let's also talk about the mistakes they made cool okay you know people want to pick and choose they want to cancel some parts and then whitewash their own. And it's like, I, I'm, I'm all for transparency, but let's just get it all out there for everybody, right? And it's yeah. another one of those things where we never thought we would have to do this with Bruce, but it's the whole separation of the individual from the artist or performer in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. And as we know, so many of the greatest uh, uh, artistic individuals have had their demons, have had been sometimes terrible people, right? But, yeah. And so it's just kind of uh, a difficult course to navigate. And so, obviously from this point, we'll kind of see where things go even with his own legacy and how the estate handles it. However, I was quite surprised because I haven't seen them post anything on Instagram recently. Yeah. And I thought, oh, well, that makes sense. But no, I went on their page and they've been posting like nonstop the last few days. It's just they must have fallen off my algorithms. And I'm like, wow, not even not even going to address it. Still just trying to sell sandals and T-shirts. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, um, <laughs> You know, uh, what we need is, is a, now we have an opportunity for a real biography and not, not one, not basically I'm leading to is Oliver. Someone needs to call Oliver Stone and say, make, make this biography because Ooh. right. Well, it's, it is pretty crazy because they were shipping cocaine from America to Hong Kong in a very, uh, obviously illegal, uh, and dangerous manner, right? This yeah. was. You know, this is something like that would be an Oliver Stone type movie, right? Yeah. Or, you know, and, and it's just interesting. And once again, we don't know if this had anything to do with his death, but I can only, I'd imagine you assume the same thing, right? Yeah, I mean, that it's, there's got to be a correlation now. It, it kind of, yeah. If it isn't a direct correlation as part of the, it has to be part of the equation. But again, I'm, like you said, you're no doctor, I'm no doctor. Right. And obviously, uh, just like any sort of uh, substance, whether it's alcohol or junk food or anything, if you're kind of doing it excessively, uh, it can affect and hurt your body. And we look at someone like Bruce Lee, who was a fitness addict, right? Uh, so, you know, who knows what his body's going through in the sense that he's still training like a maniac, yet he's also uh, doing recreational drugs. And, you know, maybe he wasn't sleeping enough. Maybe, uh, I don't know. And so, but once again, that's just our short little take on it. Definitely check uh, out the Kung Fu Geniuses uh, podcast episode on it. Sifu Alex, uh, who is the Bruce Lee expert, uh, in my opinion, he, he does a much better job of breaking it down. And I will be interested to see kind of where where and if other Bruce Lee historians, such as Matthew Pauly, what their take will be on it. I'm sure someone's going to interview them. Or who knows, maybe there will be a second edition of his Bruce Lee book that because this changes a lot of things and who knows what else is in these 50 letters like for example another thing that's in there is I mean not only the drug use uh, Linda's heavy involvement in it but also another mistress 
which uh, the Matthew Polly book had addressed uh, mm-hmm. a, the, a few of the mistresses Bruce Lee had. But in these letters, there's another one discussed because he wants to do like a booty call at Bob Baker's house uh, while his family's away. So, yeah. But, um, uh, so any, any final thoughts on the, the well, letters? I was, I, I know we're going to, we're going to transition into talking about the films mm-hmm. in a moment, but I also know that there was a podcast released, uh, recently that you listened to on your drive down. Oh um, yes. The, so uh, I don't, and, and since the theater where we watch these films is owned and operated by this individual. Um, yeah. Do we want to touch on that at all? Yeah. That's a good idea. Actually a great idea to touch on a little bit. Uh, cause quite frankly, the two films, I, I imagine we're going to cover pretty quickly because uh, one of them was less than stellar. Uh, but so, yes, I listened to Quentin Tarantino's interview on the Joe Rogan podcast. I know you have mm-hmm. as well. And most people mm-hmm. have at this point. And the thing is, for Quentin Tarantino has an, an encyclopedic knowledge of film almost. But one of the main problems is it's when it's in his own wheelhouse. Yes. But then... He has a tendency, especially when it comes to Bruce Lee now, because you could tell Quentin Tarantino doesn't like to be told what he can or cannot do. And you have to appreciate that. That's how he got to where he was. That's how he first made Reservoir Dogs, right? Because he was told he couldn't do it. And it's like, hey, well, you know, I'm going to do it. But uh, now it's like, so when talking about Bruce Lee, he is, he, he's misquoting a lot of stuff. He misquotes Matthew Pauly. And so Quentin Tarantino has a tendency to misquote facts like he does bring up a lot of uh true statements regarding for example the kung fu tv series how it was not stolen by bruce lee right or excuse me it was not stolen from bruce lee uh the creators of the series began working on it in 1967 as the first documentation uh and then 1969 it was already heavily in development so this whole idea that it was stolen from bruce uh is you know been proven to be false uh, however, Quentin Tarantino goes above and beyond, like saying F you to Linda Lee, because in her first biography, she wrote how it was stolen from Bruce when in actuality, uh, I mean, Bruce had already seen their treatment first and Warner Brothers, not wanting to lose him, had offered him the chance to write his own treatment. And so he wrote his own kind of martial arts Western one. Either which way, you know, the way the rhetoric he uses attacking her is unnecessary, you know, uh, and from that perspective, it's like you start to get uh, very annoyed with him. You're like, okay, first of all, first off, what you're saying is kind of true, but you're misquoting names, you're misquoting dates, you're aggressively attacking someone for no reason. It's like as as genius as he can be, he can equally be as uh, inappropriate mm-hmm. and, uh, for lack of a better word, douchey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I, uh, I was trying to keep the rhetoric uh, appropriate, but yeah, it just comes off as a douchebag. So, so here's uh, now. I don't want to get us banned from the New Beverly Cinema because it, it is it's worth driving down from Murphy's, California, for yes. you, or or for me, it's even worth the the five mile walk if I were to walk it. I mm-hmm. mean, like heartbeat. It's one of my favorite theaters. Uh, so here's my question: Do you find it like interesting? That shortly after he does that interview, the first Bruce Lee type films that are being shown are Bruce exploitation films and not an actual Bruce Lee film. No, because uh, technically the calendar was already up, right? Okay. Uh, a few weeks back, and so who knows? Like maybe it was he had booked Joe Rogan and decided to do it that way, possibly. But this is like I tell people, 
and the, the one thing I, I did like in, and I, is obviously the book adaptation of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is out now. And apparently in the book, he writes more regarding the whole Bruce Lee sequence and kind of how it's used as a setup. But the thing is, it's it's historical fiction. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but that aside, uh, I, I've always said this because people are like, oh, well, he he claims to be such a big fan of Bruce Lee and you know did the Kill Bill movies. And I'm always like, well, no, he's never really claimed that. And obviously, if you look at him as an auteur, because I do believe Quentin Tarantino deserves the title of an auteur, uh, then again, you may argue uh, if an auteur really is an appropriate uh, title within film theory. But I yeah. digress once again. Uh but he's, he's not a huge Bruce Lee fan. He's a huge exploitation fan. And when you yes, look at his is. favorite martial arts movie, it was one of the two we had screen, uh, mm-hmm. Fist of Fury 2. So yeah. anybody whose favorite all-time martial arts movie is a Bruce exploitation film, automatically right there is probably signaling that they are more aligned with the exploitive nature of Kung Fu cinema as opposed to Bruce Lee. Well, I mean, and I mean, this even this this there's a reason. Like, I mean, I think we can ask these questions, but at the same time, there's a reason why we are going to Fist of Fury two, and I mean, we were talking earlier. Like, our favorite our favorite kickboxer is Kickboxer three, of course, of all the of all yeah. of them, or like Martial Law two. You know, bringing that. I mean, this is a pure just. Exploit these are pure exploitation films trying to you know exploit the audience of money by you know kind of continuing a, a, a you know a, a genre or a series of films. But uh, but I'm digressing a little bit too. I think I think if I'm speaking as freely as possible, and I'm still haven't gotten to the point where I'm speaking super freely on the podcast because I'm not I'm not there yet. But I think the problem with the scene is that it isn't executed as well as it could have been. If the acting had been a little different for, for the Bruce Lee character, and I'm not putting this on the actor's shoulders, or I'm just saying the way it all came together, or maybe the way, the way the action scene was shot, for me, that, that's where I became uncomfortable. Like, well, I'm okay with historical fiction, but the way it was put together from the writing to the acting to the fight sequence and remember it's it's never even necessarily uh established whether or not it's not just a dream sequence in his head that being said we also have to like if we're taking it from uh and once again hot topic issue right now critical race studies so let's say if we're taking it from like a critical uh uh race uh critique uh we would have to you and I are both Caucasian individuals. We'd have to detach ourselves from that and look at, okay, from the perspective of an Asian viewer or Asian American viewer, it's also this idea of, okay, the white guy coming in, uh, you know, and dominating the uh, greatest like Asian martial artist of the 20th century, if not ever. So there's that perspective too. However, from Quentin Tarantino's perspective, he was trying to, it's almost, he was trying to establish what a lethal uh, badass that the character of Cliff was. And in the book, he talks about it a lot more. Like he mentioned in the podcast, how in World War II, he was like a guerrilla soldier. He trained with like the Filipino fighting soldiers, which therefore mm-hmm. means he would have had martial arts training and like was killing people with his bare hands. Obviously, uh, Bruce Lee, as far as we know, never killed anybody with his bare hands. And I think, so what Quentin Tarantino was trying to do is, okay, I'm going to take maybe the most badass martial artist of the 20th century and hold and show that this guy can hold his own. Not because I'm trying to put Bruce Lee down or uh, trying to put uh, any sort of race or ethnicity down because I'm trying to establish this character's credentials because they're going to be relevant later on in the film. 
Well, it's, it's exactly what uh, what uh, one of the casting people says to uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio uh, character, who's your, or another actor on the set, saying where they've established uh, his his characters from the past as a leading man, and now he's guest starring to help uh, propel the new star. Right. You know, so in many ways that that is essentially what he did. I mean, I think you and I could, if if we have like, if we're neutral in watching that scene, we understand. Oh, cultural icon, one of the greatest, you know, uh, no, greatest known martial arts of all time is now. Uh, we're we're using that to propel the character that nobody knows to the next level. And, and look, Bruce Lee is my hero, right? He's been my inspiration since I was a kid. Uh, and so for some reason for me watching that scene, it didn't bother me that much. Cause I'm like, I know this is fake. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. I looked at it as kind of, as I always say, this is the same filmmaker that at the end of Inglorious Bastards has Hitler's face blown off with a machine gun by, uh, American soldiers. Right. It's like he, he is uh, provocative. He's ultra violent. He's exploitive. I mean, we go into his films knowing that there's going to sometimes be controversial hot topics. Now, would I have filmed that whole sequence that same way? Absolutely not. Of course not. Yeah. But that was his choice. And I'm like, eh. but it just, it, it didn't bother me. Cause I know, I, I know I am safe and secure in my, uh, feelings towards Bruce Lee. But, at the same time, I would have done the sequence a lot different, but it wasn't my movie. And aside from that sequence, I thought it was a fantastic film. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I, I agree. And I think a lot of people put blinders on simply because of that scene, but really it, it is, a, is a great film. But now. So now, yeah. Now we are going to discuss the double feature at the New Beverly Cinema. So for people that don't know, the New Beverly Cinema is located in the mid-city area of L.A., close to Hollywood, kind of Hollywood mid-city in between, right? Like technically you yeah. could say it's either. Uh, it's on Beverly Boulevard. Beverly and 3rd would be the closest cross street uh, of the major it's ones. Be- is between La Brea and oh, La Brea, uh, Fairfax. Me. Yeah. But it's basically a block and a half from La Brea. Yeah, sorry, it runs parallel with third. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and in the past, Gavin and I have gone there plenty of times. Uh, they quite often, they, they sometimes show new films if it's relevant to filmmakers that they like and so forth. But for the most part, it's classic cinema. It's grindhouse cinema. It's exploitation cinema from the past. Uh, usually every month they'd have at least one Kung Fu screening on Tuesday nights. This was the old schedule pre-COVID, uh, a double feature. Uh, we've seen plenty of amazing films there. Uh, I've got to watch Eastern Condors. Uh, I've, I've watched Ninja Turtles. Uh, I've watched plenty of Bruce Bloitation now. I've, I've seen Billy Chong films there. So mm-hmm. it, it's been great. Obviously, during COVID, it was closed down like all movie theaters. So it's triumphantly returned. So I decided to make the quest down simply because the first screening, The Big Boss Part 2, is an extremely rare kung fu film. Almost so rare it can be considered a lost film. However, a lost film, for those that don't know, is a film that has literally been lost to the ravages of time. There is no copies available of it until one sometimes is magically discovered. A perfect example would be the silent uh, Joan of Arc film that if I'm not mistaken was a lost film for years until it was discovered in the closet, like the broom closet of a mental institute in Argentina. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great one. Yeah. So if you go on Wikipedia and just look up lost films, you'll go down a rabbit hole of like, holy cannoli, uh, like 
a lot of very interesting, cool things. And it's always cool when you hear about a lost film that is then discovered. But this film is technically not a lost film. There's just very few prints of it available. One of the <laughs> only prints is owned by Quentin Tarantino. So I believe the last time they had screened it, I want to say was something like 2015, because it was right before I moved back to America. So I've never seen this film. So that's why go. I took the trek down. My wonderful partner, Jessica, was like, yeah, cool, let's go do it. So we went down. Uh, I got to see my brother and his family in Bakersfield, which was great, for 4th of July. And then we got to train with Sugarfoot, uh, our sensei, for a day. So that was amazing. And then I get to go see this double kung fu screening. So I'm pumped, right? We show up. And I'm huge on getting to the movies early, no matter what. Whether you have a ticket already and you're assigned seat. This is obviously an old school theater. So it's you buy your tickets in advance, but you have to get there early to get good seats like it used to be. So we show up and the line's already like down the street. It was mm -hmm. the most packed uh, of the Kung Fu screenings I've ever been to. Yep. Uh, aside from uh, the the Billy Chong double one where we had, uh, uh, ooh, what's his name? Uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank, last name Scott. Uh, That's the one I didn't go to. You, you sent me a picture or something. No, 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 you were there with me. You were definitely there with me because remember, uh, hold on real quick. Uh, yeah, my, see, see, I've seen so many movies there that I, I uh, that they do blend together. Carl Scott, I was right, Carl Scott. I was oh thinking, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. of course. Thank uh, you. So yeah, that was the uh, that one was pretty packed because a lot of his friends and family uh, yeah were there. But this was the most packed one we've ever seen. The lines down the door, meeting all sorts of cool. Uh, equally as nerdy new friends. Everyone loved my Bruce Lai shirt. Yes, I have a <laughs> Bruce Lai Ho Chang Gao shirt. Uh, so when it comes to The Big Boss Part 2, what I, I went into this film knowing that I wasn't going to like the fight scenes because, uh, quite frankly, I have, aside from Clan of the White Lotus, I've never been impressed by Lo Lee's uh, on-screen performance as a martial artist. He's not a formally trained martial artist. Yes, he started in Shaw Brothers Studio in the 60s and probably went through actor training and stunt training, but I'm just, you know, and it may be blasphemous, but, you know, Five Fingers of Death, I, I enjoy watching the movie, but not for the martial arts, more for the cultural significance of it. Yeah. But uh, The Big Boss Part 2 stars Lo Lee. It's directed by uh, Chi Chen, a.k.a. Chan Chores, which he's credited here, who is the... Uh, manager you could say or the foreman of the ice factory in the original big boss uh and uh we have uh the most significant other player would be michael chan uh yeah. everyone's favorite everyone was pumped about him being in it uh popping up as a henchman at the end uh, but it was great it's, it's an absolute uh like nugget uh, just like gold nugget that appears like halfway through the not halfway through like two-thirds of the film in, three-quarters of the film in, and bam, there he is. It's, it's, you know something good's going to come. Right. So this being the quote-unquote official sequel, uh, it being filmed in Thailand on the same locations uh, with, you know, uh, Lo Li playing the brother of the Cheng Chao An character, played by Bruce Lee. Uh, he plays a character named uh, Cheng Chao Chun. Uh, I, I went into this film, as I just said, not expecting to like the fight scenes, but expecting to have a well-made, coherent film by that i mean like you look at the original big boss with low way as the director it's very much kind of uh your standard for lack of a better term like hollywood formula like everything is technically crisp you know it's well made it's coherent the plot it's nothing special it's kind of that studio system blah 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 it's a well 
made picture well enough, right? And I was going into this film expecting to get that, thinking, okay, I'm gonna have a coherent plot. I'm gonna have, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna have uh, continuation, you know, within the plot. It's going to make sense. Technically, it's going to look good. It's going to have uh, a nice musical score, or whatever this or that. It's gonna be easy to follow. Uh, so right out the gate, you realize that's not the case. This film is one of the most incoherent uh, kung fu movies, and that says a lot. Eh, so maybe it's not one of the most, but for, uh, for a, yeah, definitely not. But it is. It has tons of plot holes. The plot makes no sense. It's uh, a jumbled mess uh, from the start. Uh, it's all over the place. There's all these mini subplots. Some are resolved. Some aren't. Some make sense. Most don't. Uh, they they try to make it like multi-genre. It steps out of the kung fu genre and becomes uh, a James Bond film, obviously inspired by The Man with the Golden Gun and the whole boat chase sequence, which is atrocious in this film. They try to incorporate like black magic type stuff. There's a whole like, you know, voodoo doctor type thing. And once again, that whole thing is not resolved. In fact, one of our friends even asked, wait, what happened to the witch doctor? They just, yeah. you, you never know what happens to him. Uh, the fight scenes, quite frankly, are terrible. Uh, like worse than most of uh because it, once again it's kind of part of this what's now called the basher genre and the mm -hmm. thing is about some of these films in the basher genre kind of like the great double box that uh was just released uh via michael worth's uh help sometimes when you watch the basher genre these early films it's kind of what i like to call rough and tumble choreography it's not as aesthetically pleasing but sometimes with these early fight choreographers that were involved in the genre whether it be lagar long or yun Ping, you see hints of their future creativity and magic. Well, yes. and there's intricacy uh, and experimentation in the fight choreography, extended amounts of strikes and hits, and you can see how they were honing their craft. This film is not one of those movies. And one, it's again, our, our friend, uh, my good friend, uh, Sifu Peter Nguyen from Legacy JKD. So a Jeet Kune Do expert, a Screama, Shuto, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> He's the one that pointed out, he's like, man, the whole time it was a, a one, two, three type choreography. And I was like, well, what, what are you referring to? He's like, well, the bad guy would come at him and he would attack with a single attack. And our protagonist would either evade or block and then attack back once himself. So it's hi-ya, mm -hmm. huh, huh. Hi-ya, huh, huh, the whole movie. And the only yeah. time it breaks from that pattern is during the finale when uh, first Loli fights uh, Michael Chan, which is probably yes. the best a fight of the picture. There's a little bit more of continuous choreography in action. Mm -hmm. And then also when he fights uh, Chan Chor, who's the director slash the foreman from the first movie. Uh, and he, there's is an extended sequence that is okay as well. But once again, that adds to, it adds to the, the weird inconsistencies of the plot. And I can attribute this to, so coincidentally enough, we watched the Mandarin dub with English subtitles. And yes. so at one point, I am thinking, man, maybe it's just the subtitles are super off or something. So once again, my, my level of Mandarin is what we call like conversationally fluent, right? Or elementary proficient. So it's, it's usually difficult for me to even watch movies for extended periods of time. But uh, I just decide, all right, I'm gonna try listening. And no, listening, it, it, the subtitles were pretty correct. It just made no sense. So. <laughs> Even like the carryover of certain characters from the first movie. So in this one, special note, it was Bruce Lee's first time uh, portraying uh, a Bruce Lee character. He's actually playing Cheng Chao in prison. And I'd always been, I'd always read before that 
the movie starts off with him in prison, they visit, and then he gets executed, which was not in there. So apparently, Cheng Chao-wan to this day is still sitting in a Thai prison because he's in there for life. And as they're uh, talking, so this is his brother, right? And they're talking about how uh, third uncle got murdered. That's what mm-hmm. uh, the Bruce Lee character uh, Cheng Chao-wan says, who in the first film was the one that drops him off, right? He's like the one relative that's related to all these young men that he brings over there to work because they're all cousins in one form or another. So pretty much the argument they're having is Cheng Chao-wan, the Bruce Lee character, doesn't want to tell his brother, the Lo Lee character, who the murderer is because he wants to get revenge himself. But in their dialogue, he's saying... Uh, the lowly character is saying, but I'm his son. Uh, I should avenge him. Yeah. And then, so then it became, that's when I finally put it together because when I started listening in Mandarin just to make sure, because uh, he even says something along the lines of like, I'm his son, as if the, and the Bruce Lee character isn't. So that's when I realized in uh, like Chinese familial relationships, quite often cousins are called brothers. Mm-hmm. And hence, uh, why uh, Bruce Lee keeps referring to him as uh, like Shushu, his uncle, like I believe it's Sanshu, like third uncle, whereas Lo Li calls him dad. Uh, you know, uh, and so that's when I finally put together, ah, so I don't think they're technically brothers. They're cousins that refer to each other as brothers. I discovered this firsthand when I was a teacher in China. I got super confused by my students. Uh, and that's why he's like, I should avenge him. But at the same time, that never happened in the first movie. Third Uncle was not murdered, not to mention Cheng Chao-on, the Bruce Lee character, is in prison for killing the big boss. But now it's implied that the big boss is actually the foreman slash manager of uh, the the plant who has also been hiding gold because apparently they're no longer running drugs. They're running gold. And it's just an incoherent mess. Inside ice. Inside ice. But it it makes no sense. Like, there's so many weird inconsistencies from the first movie. There's all these random plot holes. There's all these mini subplots. There's terrible uh, special effects, like the whole boat chase sequence. Uh, At some points, they literally just show them still in the water, but it's it's supposed to be like they're moving. And... (laughs) It just, it doesn't work. Like the sound effect is the bug going, but you can tell they're sitting still just shooting machine guns. Uh, you know, people, people die and then come back. Like the whole snake sequence when everyone gets attacked by the witch doctor snakes. Remember when they're in looking for the gold in the grave? But uh, I, yeah, I mean, well, that part made total sense to me because it, then it turned out to all just be a figment of their imagination. Well, that's all I can assume, but it doesn't ever establish that. It just cuts away. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a... It's, uh, of course, now that I was going to mention something, motorcycle goes by, but it's, uh, the only way to experience this film is to just, uh, it's almost like you, you have to be like in a Zen state of mind where you're just experiencing moment to moment and it will not make sense, but maybe it does make sense in some one story thread you pick up. That's the one you hold on to. Or you go and see it in a theater with a bunch of other fans, uh, in a grindhouse type setting. Yeah, I mean, it was fantastic. Yeah. I, I had a great time. The one thing I will say I liked was I liked his house he had. The one on stilts, like in the middle of the yeah. the, the jungle. It was it was a kind of a badass setup. I was like, I'd build a house like that. Yeah, and I also like where they, they buried the mother just out, out in the blue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just kind of a random tombstone. And the fact that the daughter goes like every day to visit, I mean, that's awfully nice of her. 
uh, yeah. but it's still really weird. Oh, and then at the end, the whole thing where it ends up she's not actually the new big boss's daughter. He killed her father and took his identity, yet somehow she didn't notice. And yeah, I, and then somehow it's okay then. I don't know. The, the, there's a, there, there are a few holes. There, there there's a few. Holes. I will say this, though. Uh, on good authority, uh, it is possible this film is getting released later this year on Blu-ray. Uh-huh. And I'm still going to buy it because I of support course. the cause. I support getting all these films out there. And I think in terms of exploitation and martial arts history, it is quite significant. Uh, however, I have always thought... Now, keep in mind, it doesn't need to be based... It might be a little too late now, timeline-wise, but not really with the popularity of geriatric action films. But even if we said it like 10 years ago, what if we made a movie where Cheng Chao-An finally gets out of prison? Yes. And it stars Bruce Lai. Yes. That's what I've always wanted, because Bruce Lai is about uh, 10 years younger than Bruce, which puts him about 70 now uh, or so. So if we made it in the next few years, it'd be perfect. It's like... He gets out. It's almost like, well, what's this guy been in here for 50 years for? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I guess he's done his time. And it's like he comes out in this whole new world, uh, whatever, whatever. Maybe he finds out he has a daughter uh, and a, a, a grandchild, you know, from the whole cut sequence where he went and saw that other prostitute, not the one that gets killed. Uh, that would be cool. And that would be a great official sequel. And technically would still be in line with this one because the Bruce Lee character is not executed at the beginning like I had always heard. Mm-hmm. But really, uh, it was it was a fun experience for being there watching it. I'm glad I went and saw it because it's important as a kung fu film historian and aficionado to uh, view all the films uh, that are significant to the genre slash subgenres, even if they aren't always our favorite. And that will be my final note on that film. Uh, um, yeah, I'm good to go to the second. Because, the, I mean, the second film is just it's it's a cut above. I mean, there's. It, Definitely a cut above. And when it comes to the second film, so I will say this. I'd seen it before when I was younger. I saw it as Chinese Connection 2. That was like the DVD release and never really liked it. I love Bruce Lai. I'm a huge Bruce Lai fan. He's in my top 10 kung fu stars of all time. A lot of his Mm -hmm. movies, I think he's a great performer, uh, whether it's in specifically the Bruce Bloitation genre or not. But I never really liked that one. Obviously, the copy that had been available for years is one of those terrible, you know, pan and scan, VHS rip, whatever, formatted all wrong, blown out of proportion, half the screen gets cut off. So I never really liked this film. But uh, the double screening we went to on my birthday a couple years back, it was this film and... Now I'm drawing a blank. Uh, The Hot, The Cool, and The Vicious, maybe? I yes, don't, uh, that's what it was. I believe that's what it was. And uh, uh, I think the hot and the cool and the vicious was actually second, which is why, uh, you know, I, I quote unquote had to sit through this one because probably I would have been like, oh, I've seen it before. Uh, you know, it's not one of my favorites. But being forced to watch it on the big screen that first time gave me a whole new appreciation for it. Because first of all, you're watching the film the way it was intended to on the big screen. None of it gets cut off. Everything is within uh view every from a technical standpoint this was the way it was supposed to be made right and i after watching was like holy crap i like this movie now it is good uh and this second viewing of it now has only reaffirmed that original feeling i I, i've gained i'm getting a new appreciation for it each time i watch it on the big screen so i'd love to see a a remastered blu-ray of this one as well hint hint to whoever out there is doing this but uh so once again fist of fury 2 
is one of the two sequels to Fist of Fury. If we, I mean, sure, there's tons of other random ones out there, uh, <laughs> but Golden Harvest made what's a, considered the official one, New Fist of Fury, starring Jackie Chan. They brought back Lo Wei to direct, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and so that film had some of the principal cast uh, mm-hmm. from Fist of Fury, Bruce Lee's uh, original film. Uh, most importantly, Nora Mao playing. Uh, his, you know, significant other. Uh, and so she has a key uh, part in this. And so they had a couple of actors in that one. This film, which the year of release is all over the place. You'll see it sometimes as early as 1976, sometimes as early as 1979. Typically it says 1977. I have this weird gut feeling it might be more around 76, and I'll explain why later. But this film, so obviously Nora Mao didn't come back, so her character kills herself at the beginning in at the funeral. They do a great job of covering her with the robe, so uh, uh, good job there. But this one, yes. for example, brings back uh, actor Tian Feng as the school manager, like the head of the school, the, the or like the head sensei now that or you might say, or the head uh, sifu or shufu now that mm-hmm. uh, in the original film when Ho Yan Jiao or Fak Yun Gap dies. So they bring back him and uh, Lee Kun, another actor who's in that one. So both films feature original cast members. This one, uh, I, I definitely prefer this one over New Fist of Fury. Uh, you know, that was an early Jackie one. Jackie wasn't even himself yet. They were still trying to put him in that Bruce Lee mold. But the nice part about this one is uh, from a technical standpoint, director Lee So Nam. Now, once again, there's been three different directors credited to this film. Lee So Nam, uh, an, individ- uh, an Indonesian individual, if I had to guess, by the name of Iksam Lahardi, and even Jimmy Shaw have all been credited as directors mm-hmm. on this picture. But from when Michael Worth has talked about this film, he refers to it as a Lee Sonam picture. So I do believe that Lee Sonam was the individual responsible for making this film. And it's got his stamp on it, and you can see uh, from a technical standpoint how it stands above it's a step above the rest, including New Fist of Fury, in my opinion, because he's. it features some very dynamic, uh, ingenious, and creative camera work. This includes, uh, so for a lot of viewers, like a lot of times with standard kung fu films, we have a static shot. The camera stays still. It's a medium yes. shot. We watch the action. Sometimes when we have great performers, it works fine. But this film experiments a lot with tracking and traveling shots, meaning the camera is moving. It's on rails or tracks on the ground and it's going side to side or it's following the action. Uh, in is, one sequence, there's a great spot, uh, uh, part in a restaurant where the bad guys are talking downstairs and then out of nowhere, the camera just rises mm-hmm. and shows our uh, Bruce Lai character, who, by the way, is named Chen Shan, the brother of Chen Jen in the original. It shows Bruce Lai sitting there watching them, right? Just kind of a very creative shot that's obviously done with a crane of some sort, uh, which by Hollywood standards is nothing that big, but just shows the creativity that Lee Sonam was using. Uh, he does a lot of interesting framing, meaning medium shots, close-ups, far away shots. He does a lot of interesting angles. So we have low angles where most people would just, once again, have that static shot. We have uh, high angles. We have mm-hmm. also bird eye view at some point. Uh, he even experiments with his lenses. He uses a fisheye lens during the final fight uh, where uh, we have, coincidentally enough, Lo Lee, who plays our villain, Miyamoto, uh, kind of getting in his martial arts stance using this little claw type uh, hand gesture. Uh, 
and it's a fisheye lens shot just kind of random but it's like cool that's mm-hmm. a cool shot and it's funny uh, once again my good friend Peter asked me he's like well I'm not familiar with that style what Japanese style would that be where he's like almost doing like eagle claw and I'm like I think it was just a random choice for the, <laughs> the film but so as an actual filmmaker uh, Lee Sonam was very dynamic you know he made the most of what he had and it gives this kind of fresh and innovative feel now we we've talked about this before how in some Bruce Lee films they he was using a cinematographer from Japan that is correct correct and you know a lot of the tracking motions you discussed and like the crane it just it it feels and it felt like a lot like a Japanese samurai film or a film directed by maybe even like Hideo Gosho where the cameras it's it's parallel with the with the with the characters and it's a little lower center of gravity, which I don't, I think that Hirogosha might be the wrong reference. Uh, the guy who did Tokyo story, uh, I should know this Ozu possibly, um, but, uh, you are hundred percent correct. Cause when in his directorial debut, Bruce Lee specifically requested, uh, cinematographer Tadashi Nishimoto, who was, oh. uh, he worked for golden harvest studios. He was brought over there during the sixties yeah. or excuse me, obviously golden harvest was formed late sixties, early seventies. Uh, he was brought over to Hong Kong to kind of teach uh, like uh, cinematography in a sense. And so mm-hmm. that's why Bruce Lee specifically uh, requested him for his film. And I do and agree. I, I, it does have uh, just some amazing type camera work that you wouldn't expect from a low budget sequel, you know, technically a Bruce Bloitation film. And it, and it is Yasujiro Ozu who directed Tokyo Story. So he, he was, I think he was very famous for having like a lower, a lower camera angle that, uh, that's sort of parallel with people who might be sitting on the ground. And obviously, and, yeah, uh, I'm not as familiar with Japanese cinema. I'm trying to get more into it. But Tokyo Story is also the one where they talk directly into the camera a lot, right? I think so. Which gives it, and I remember studying that in undergrad. Uh, one of my professors had us watch a couple sequences from the film because for most people, when you think about it, actors are never looking directly into the camera. It's always a yes. slight angle off as if they're speaking to the other character. But this film disrupts this usual cinematic viewing yeah. by having them talk directly into the camera. They're not breaking the fourth wall. They're still talking to someone within uh, mm-hmm. the narrative in the film. Uh, but it's just but kind to, of, it's like in your face. You're like, whoa. It's still in the diegesis of the film, not, but it's just very kind of disruptive in a sense. When that's what I really liked about uh, Fist of Fury 2, uh, in that, you know, I know, I, all, of course, most films have emotional content. And I, I know we keep going back to that, but it's, it's, it's entirely relevant, particularly in this subgenre. The, the camera work and the, the way it's tracking, the way the camera's moving, kind of like a slow pace, but still capturing what's entirely relevant story-wise and acting-wise, it does help the audience feel emotionally more connected. I mean, the... I. I I know with this screening, I had to leave a little early, but I, and I, I'd seen it before, but like just the, just the pain that the characters went through up to that first graveyard scene. Like there's just an explosion of like, uh, I don't know, emotion at that point that just fantastic. And, and it's, it, it, it is through the camera work where you, you watch the people coming up. It just, it, it this film actually nails it as this, despite being an, as an exploitation film. Agreed. And obviously, uh, there's a lot of sets used in this film, just like as there is in any Kung Fu film. And they recreate the Jing Wu school spot on. I don't know if it's the same set. I mean, I doubt it, but it looks nearly identical to the one in Fist of Fury. That being said, unlike Fist of Fury, which was shot exclusively 
almost on studio lot sets, I believe. This film obviously films outside a lot and it mm -hmm. gives it a whole kind of fresh look and feel to it. I mean, we have the whole sequence even on the train, right? Where he gets attacked on the train and that's a real train. Uh, I was very curious as to where they would have filmed that. I'd imagine maybe at that time, new territories, Hong Kong, because uh, once again, mainland China was not open up for production of Hong Kong films or really didn't have any film production going on. Uh, it doesn't look like Korea, so I can only assume they must have filmed it uh, in Hong Kong, perhaps yeah. the new territories. Uh, but either which way, so you, you're kind of getting this uh, unique aesthetic in that sense of, whoa, we're outside. Okay, we're, you know, this might be a studio lot, but oh, we're, we're out in the open. Uh, and it kind of gives, give gives us a fresh uh, approach. It, it it just it felt like a good film. It just there's every there isn't uh, and they took their time, you know. Unlike unlike the Big Boss two, that just kind of tries to jump into it to capture the audience. This film took its time, uh, slowly unveiling the the protagonist, slowly unveiling you know, and taking its time to show how cruel the the antagonists were, and they were pretty pretty cruel. Yeah. Uh, most definitely. So what we haven't talked about yet is the fight scenes in this film. Mm -hmm. So overall, uh, I'd say in terms of me, me being like overly harsh, they're, they're hit or miss. That being said, even the misses are very entertaining. Yeah. Uh, and there's, in fact, I shouldn't say hit or miss. They're hit or uh, kind of average or standard. There is no misses. None of the fights are like, ooh, that was bad. So I used the wrong terminology. I apologize. They're, they're, par for the course for that era or above average. Yeah. And once again, I've always liked Bruce Lee, Bruce Lai as a performer. I'm slightly biased. However, the reason why I think this film was 76 is simply because there was a, a difference in Bruce Lai's uh, physical screen fighting abilities. There's, as I always say, there's Bruce Lee, the man, the myth, and everything before that. When you watch mm -hmm. all of his earliest roles, he's slight, he's a little stiff. He's a little wooden, mm -hmm. even though he had physical capabilities and his background was uh, he was a PE teacher and he studied gymnastics. Not so once again, not like Sonny Chiba level training for the, you know, Olympic team, but he had good gymnastic abilities, good athlete, which those kind of individuals, it's easy for them to learn martial arts. But obviously in their early roles, you know, they may not have a stellar of technique. And when you watch really early ones uh, like. There's so many different titles uh, for some of these movies, like Young Bruce Lee or Goodbye Bruce Lee, His Last Game of Death or any of those. It, it, his performances are a little wooden, a little stiff, right? Then you watch Bruce Lee, The Man, The Myth, and it's like he's this whole different martial artist. His Wing Chun, like even the whole opening sequence with Yip Chun, Yip Man's son, his Wing Chun, once again, I'm not the Wing Chun expert, but looks very stellar. The when he works on the wooden dummy, you're like, damn, that looks good. All of his like training sequences in that movie, you see how much more explosive it is. Uh, you see the change in his physique. You see his kicks are much more like mm -hmm. Taekwondo kicks now. Very fast, uh, very dynamic. Uh, even like his his movement is much more like a boxer. So it's almost like he he took time to train and adapt. So that being said, this is one of those movies where maybe it was around the same time, hence why it's 77, that because he's definitely his abilities are above that of his early ones, but still not quite what I believe is like Bruce Lee, the man, the myth, and everything after that era. Yeah, his, uh, his, his charisma is there. Oh, 100% as a performer, he's always had yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just, it, the moment you first see him on screen, the charisma is there, but there are periods where it looks, I don't know, maybe it's the, the shooting schedule or what have you, where he starts to look, I don't know, I don't want to say fatigued, but rigid. Yeah, rigid's a good word. He still had that 
uh, rigid uh, nature to him, as I said, which is stiff, like in his early roles. Also here, he's still doing a lot of, uh, they're having him obviously do the, the Bruceploitation type movements, right? And anytime he tries to do like the, the double hand classic Bruce Lee pose, he kind of does it in this weird hunched over way where mm-hmm. it's, I, I'd imagine it's, it's not like nowadays where you can easily pull up Bruce Lee on your phone and be like, oh, no, 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 you need to change that angle. It's like he's going mm-hmm. off a memory of, oh, I think Bruce Lee stands like this. And so quite often it's this weird hunched stance he takes. Uh, and also sometimes I feel like some of... Uh, the, the fight scenes he does, his performance is actually hindered by his costume. He's tr- constantly tr- wearing the traditional long uh, male Chinese robes, which mm-hmm. hides some of his movement. And I mean that in a bad way. It's like, well, I want to see him kicking. I want to see the clear movement. But it's kind of uh, almost convoluted. Like you can't clearly see what he's doing, even if the choreography is great. And I want to say overall, especially for that era, the choreography is good in this film. It's fast paced. Yeah. Uh, it's got a good rhythm to it. Uh, so then, for example, the sequences where he's just wearing kind of normal, traditional uh, clothes, not sans robe, uh, we get to see him in action a lot more, and uh, it looks uh, a lot better. On top of that, I also like how we get to see him do his gymnastics in this film without, because in some of his later films, he's doubled, even at the, the opening sequence of Dynamo, when he's, uh, when his... Sifu gives him the double butterfly knives and he does that form. He's very obviously being doubled by someone else kind of doing this jumping through the air technique. Not that he mm-hmm. couldn't do it, but it's probably just like, yeah, we'll let one of the stuntmen do it. But in this film, you see there's one sequence where I believe he does either two or three backflips in a row yes. and lands and it doesn't cut. And you see it's it's Bruce Lai and you're like, wow, that's cool because it's like, you know, he can do that. And same thing. You see him do a lot of the aerial uh, gymnastics type work in this film where it doesn't cut away and you clearly see it's him. So it's very cool that we get to see that from him in this picture. I would agree with that. I, I, I think, I, and maybe it's, maybe it's because like, sure, maybe my, it grew, it, it grew on my list, you know, where, where, where this, where Fist of Fury 2 falls, uh, because we had just watched, started watching it after The Big Boss 2. But I don't think so, because when, when we can, when you isolate the film and break it down, there are reasons why this just works cinematically, choreographically, acting, script. It just it it just works, and I, I agree with you where you place it on your uh, ahead of a uh, new Fist of Fury as well. I think that one was a little. I don't know, just thrown together. Yeah, thrown together. Obviously, probably bigger budget, but it's like, once again, they were trying to force Jackie to be Bruce, which is kind of nice in this one, is Bruce Lai is not playing, obviously he's not playing Chen Zhen, he's playing Chen Shan, and so yeah. he's supposed to be similar, but he's also his own character in a sense, which is nice. Unlike Absolutely. some of the other films that Bruce Lai was forced to do, where it's like, you're playing Bruce Lee pretty much, whether it was a biography film or yeah. anything outside of that. But one of the most interesting things I noticed, and I think you did too, is so two of our Japanese henchmen, they, they have two yes. main ones, were for phenomenal martial arts performers. And I, so the one of them was a fantastic kicker. And when watching it, I'm like, all right, this guy is legitimately either a karateka or a karate mm-hmm. practitioner or a taekwondo practitioner. And I looked him up and supposedly his name is Yasuhiro Shikamura. Sh- Shikamura, yeah. Yeah, so That's- obviously he is Japanese. Uh, and he plays the character Yanagi Saburo. He's the one that has the fantastic kicks. He's like the of the two Japanese henchmen throughout the film. Uh, amazing. I don't know what his martial arts background is. There isn't a whole lot of information on him. Uh, I'd assume it has to be Japanese martial arts. Uh, but it's just such high, beautiful kicks. Uh, I'm not sure. But once again, 
Yasuaki Karata in that era was already working in Hong Kong cinema and same thing. He had those beautiful kicks. So, I mean, he mm-hmm. could just have some sort of traditional Japanese martial arts background as opposed to Taekwondo. I mean, quite often it, the easy thing to say is, oh, Taekwondo. Just like me, anytime someone new sees me in the gym and when I'm sparring, they're like, oh, you have a Taekwondo background? I was like, well, no, not really. Technically, yeah, but it's not where my kicks come from. It's just kind of an easy out. But I mm-hmm. think it's quite uh, uh, apparent he is a real martial artist. The second one is James Nam, uh, who apparently is from Korea and was already an established singer in Korea that was brought over to be an actor in Hong Kong from what I found. But he does a great job too because he actually does a bunch of, and we, uh, I think I talked a little bit about this afterwards with my friend Peter. He does like Aikido and Judo throughout. Mm -hmm. And one of the Judo throws he does for that era, it stands out as like one of the best I've seen because a lot of times, even in the original Fist of Fury, you know, they have the Judo, they're like learning Judo. The, The Chinese stuntmen obviously didn't have a background in judo they didn't really know judo at that point but they're just so they have such crazy physical abilities they can emulate or simulate like or you know emulate the movements and then just go with it right so it looks like like wow look at them fly through the air but they're obviously just jumping and going with it there's one throw in particular during like one of the melee fights where he grabs the dude and does a very realistic looking hip throw Mm -hmm. just in because you see the force like yeah uh, and it's not the stuntman jumping with it. It's the stuntman getting taken for a ride. Uh, and so, but it's funny during the Aikido sequences, you see, there's only a couple of them. It's, it's interesting because it's like y- you see as offensively, or I guess technically defensively, cause that's what Aikido is. So when we see James Nam using the defensive Aikido, like we'll say he's using a wrist lock, he himself looks very authentic in the move he's doing. The stuntman on the other hand, does the whole kind of like, oh, I'm jumping with it. And it's that example of the early Seagal films. The reason why the Aikido looked so dynamic and powerful was it was his own students that were his stuntmen who knew how to go with the throws, right? So Seagal could literally do the full force yep. wrist uh, lock throw and they knew how to like roll with it in a sense and not break their own wrist. When you have a I stuntman mean, that doesn't know how to do that, if you try to do it full fledged, it's gonna break their wrist. Yeah. So uh, some of the Aikido stuff, it's like the, the the technique he's using looks legit, but then obviously they couldn't do it full force because the stuntman didn't really know how to or didn't have practice going along with it. Uh, I think. Yeah. I mean, whenever whenever you pause after speaking of of how martial arts is uh, enacted or used, it's like okay, what do you want me to say? Because you're right. <laughs> you know, there's not there's not, but you're 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 right. Like, like we can hearken over to the other like uh, Aikido moves in cinema. And basically, anytime, anytime you are working with uh, stunt people who don't know that, they, it's it's more like there's a distance between the bodies, and it's just like, okay, this is where you kind of flow. But yeah, the the throw, the throws in that in Fist of Fury two in particular are pretty freaking good. Yeah, and obviously, you have the actual background Aikido in Aikido. Yes. However. I, for years, studied Shorinji Kempo, who's uh, has the, we have the uh, Goho techniques, hard, and Juho techniques. Mm-hmm. So, and mm-hmm. those Juho techniques came from Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, which is the same uh, uh, style that Aikido evolved out of. So, those yes. were always the ones I was terrible at, especially at that time, because I was still more into bodybuilding. Uh, yeah. You know, I was really big. My joints were always so easy to manipulate, because I was always just so sore. And <laughs> w- when you're doing those kind of techniques, 
I'd say this, nine out of 10 people can't pull them off. Can't pull them off in self-defense in real life, can't pull off, but then when you see those people that actually can, it's incredible. Like it, It's really something special. And it, that's it, why it, I think the, these kind of traditional martial arts can be extremely effective, but they take years to master. They really do, or just like some kind of like natural knack or, or some other ability that you bring with it, because I mean, they're so intricate. I mean, mm-hmm. it really kind of comes down to the right grip, the right motion release. I so I think I mentioned it to you the other week. So I went and like observed a hapkido class. I maybe I didn't mention you it did to you. not mention this. Oh man, and the 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 teacher, like okay, so he's got someone observing a class. So he has another teacher teaching, but then the grandmaster came in and started uh, demonstrating to his two to his two black belts, and it was just fantastic to watch. And Where like, was this school? Okay, uh, it is. Coincidentally, uh, hearkening back to uh, Jim from The Office, it is where The Office was shot. It's on Woodman and Burbank, and I'm going to give them proper credit, uh, Hop Keto. Um, uh, Woodman and Burbank, Hop Keto. Of course, it doesn't uh, want to show up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look this up before the end of the show. Cool. But uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, on Woodman Boulevard, uh, Woodman and Burbank where they intersect I believe and uh, the teacher is just like a, this, uh, an actual grandmaster and the way he was demonstrating and what I like interesting about Hapkido and I, versus Aikido like you know my experience with Aikido a lot of single hand in Aikido right. and Hapkido it's like okay now we've got you and now we're going to hurt you it's like that extra grip on top is just really devastating and, and Hapkido schools and Hapkido on the big screen in general it's interesting. Sometimes you'll see these schools that put more of an emphasis on the joint manipulation and locking and just do the basic forms and kicks. Other times there's more emphasis on the kicks, right? Like the Taekwondo Korean style kicks, maybe less on the joint manipulation and so forth. Even on the big screen, you see that, right? Like Ji uh, yes. Jie in Game of Death was much more focused on the joint manipulation and so forth. Wang in Sik has done both, but a lot of times his kicks are on display because he's such a dynamic kicker. One of the best martial artists to show both on screen, this is going to be random, is Dennis Rule, a current you know uh, stunt martial arts actor from Unlucky Stars, one of my favorite independent martial arts films. And he'll mm-hmm. incorporate within this fast-paced Hong Kong-style choreography the Hapkido wrist locks and stuff because he is a Hapkido expert. He previously had his own school and so forth. Uh, but it's interesting because I'm not sure if you know this. Did you know that in Chinese... It is the same word and characters for Aikido as it is Hapkido. Really? Yeah. So I, uh, I forget what it is in Cantonese, uh, but in Mandarin, if I'm not mistaken, it's He Qi Dao. And so that's the, the same. So it means Aikido as well as Hapkido. So you could show up to a class and not know which one you're going to be taking until you start watching it. <laughs> Okay, it, uh, the school is uh, Myung Kim Martial Arts, Hapkido, Taekwondo, uh, Judo, Kumdo, Iaido. Wow, it, but, does, uh, it does all the Korean martial arts. It does arts. everything. Even yeah. Kumdo and Iaido, which is like the sword, the Korean stick yes. sword. Yeah, interesting. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was 
it was like a blast. It was like I was in a time capsule, went back and saw some old school teaching. And he had his two black belts kind of in front of me demonstrating. And uh, he would go over and hold them. And they're like, you know, tapping. And he'd just smile and then throw them down and, and still hold on to them. And then they continue to tap the floor. Uh, and th- it that was re- great. This reminds me of something real quick. So side note, also one of the great, uh, the best Hapkido performers on screen would be the Ree brothers, Philip and Simon Ree, as well yes. as Master Jun Chong. And that's one thing we didn't discuss and this is a great final thing, is the trailers that we got at the New Beverly. So anytime they have the double screenings at the New Beverly, like let's say if it's a Kung Fu double screening, you're going to get Kung Fu movie trailers. So we very uniquely actually right out the gate got a short karate documentary from the early 70s I had never seen. It was only 10 minutes, so that makes sense. It was literally just called Karate. It very much had that late 60s, early, I think it's a 1970 maybe, Mm -hmm. had that late 60s, early 70s experimental film feel to it. (laughs) You know, you're like, oh, easy rider, like drug sequence, cool. Like, uh, you know, the the camera effects it would add in there. Uh, It was very interesting and kind of cool. We had a bunch of cool movie trailers, but the one that stands out for me is perhaps my all-time favorite old school kung fu movie trailer which was first on my vhs tape uh bruce lee and kung fu mania which was a short documentary on bruce lee and then like an hour of kung fu movie previews Uh and that trailer would be uh bruce lee fights back from the grave now the reason why i just got reminded of this is because the film stars master jun chong who's famously Mm -hmm. had his school in la for god almost 50 years now and so it was a korean film company that went over there uh and they were making a movie. In fact, I want to say that was the first movie that the Ree brothers actually worked on. Cause I think it was maybe on the Bruce Willow podcast that, uh, Simon Ree was discussing, uh, how that was like the first movie they worked on. They got paid with McDonald's. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> so the, uh, uh, Oh, excuse me. Uh, so, the, the, the trailer, so the, the, the movie, the, the trailer is literally, so sometimes Bruce Bloitation advertising and stuff lies. No, this trailer completely lies. This film is not a Bruce Bloitation film. Only, only in the title, Bruce Lee Fights Back from the Grave, in the trailer where they advertise it as Bruce Lee comes back to life because he made a deal with the black angel of death. And uh, now he has to fend off all these people coming for him. Uh, mm-hmm. And they even they go as far as saying the movie stars Bruce Lee. Like you see Jun Chong and they're like starring Bruce Lee. They don't even try to say like Bruce Lai or Bruce Lay. It's just straight up Bruce Lee. But yeah. uh, the, the interesting part is that plot's completely made up. There is no black angel of death. There is an assassin who happens to be African-American. And that's the one mm-hmm. that's featured a lot through the trailer where they're like the black angel of death. It's got this great soundtrack. It, it cuts to all these different clips. But in actuality, the plot uh, of the film, and I'm, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank on the classic uh, Hollywood film it ripped off. It's the same movie that Gary Daniels' City of Fear uh, mm-hmm. ripped off. Not M., What's the name of that movie? Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. Where it's the the plot where he shows up to meet his friend and his friend is dead and then he has to investigate and then blah, blah, blah. Uh, nah, North by Northwest is not that. that no, definitely not yeah. that one. Hold on. Uh, but for oh, you... Uh, Maltese Falcon? No. Uh, we said M, so now I'm like in yeah, I know. It's, it, for some reason, that's the first one that came to my head. But... Uh, for you, with uh, had you ever seen that trailer before? 
No, I hadn't. And I, I, I am going to stack that right alongside the Undefeatable trailer because it was it was an absolute classic trailer. Sometimes you, the, the films live up to the trailer uh, and sometimes the trailer. You know, obviously, sometimes trailers are better than films, but this trailer is just absolutely rewatchable. It's oh, yeah. fantastic, and I need to watch the film. Have you seen it? Yes, of course. I, I have a copy okay. of it. It's, it's you know what the funny part is? There's actually some great fight scenes in it because when you have someone like Jun Chong, a master of Taekwondo and Hapkido, performing on screen, you know it's going to be good. And even in the trailer, you see some fantastic like jump flying sidekicks, very powerful not like your standard kung fu movie at the time where it's like i'm a guy flying through the air because i just jumped off a trampoline these are like real yeah. taekwondo performers that are like step 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 whack like dynamic sidekick like the difference between the peking opera performers of early kung fu cinema like i'm jumping on a trampoline through the air and then casanova wong uh <laughs> you know flying through the air on uh his own willpower Oh my gosh, it's going to drive me crazy if I can't think of the name of this movie. Uh, he shows up, the friend, is that, do you, do you, is it black and white as a color? Dude, I can't, I've never actually seen the movie. All I know is that, uh, oh, The Third Man, that's what it is. Oh, The Third Man, yeah. Hold on, let's course. see. Let me just make sure, God, yes, it came back to me. The Third Man. Uh, the third man starts as a, a writer of Pulp Westerns who arrives penniless as a guest of his childhood chum only to find him dead, which is the mm -hmm. same movie that uh, City of Fear completely rips off. Uh, he's even an author, right? It literally takes that plot. Yes. This film uses the same uh, – Bruce Lee fights back in the grave – uses that same plot. It's like he shows up in L.A. to like see his friend, finds him dead, You know, tries to investigate. Spoiler alert, his friend ends up being alive at the end as this big-time drug dealer, and then they fight to the death. Of course. Yeah. So, uh, any closing thoughts on uh, everything we discussed today? Uh, I would just say film ex exploitation, exploit the exploitation subgenre of martial art movies are absolutely fun. You'll sometimes find not just them not them not to just be fun, but to have some rare hidden gems within them. And uh, we had one fun film, and we had a hidden gem. This is true. This is true. And yeah, you, you can't write off Bruce Bloitation. A lot of very significant figures in martial arts cinema got their start in Bruce Bloitation. Uh, behind the camera, in front of the camera, one of my all-time favorite kung fu movies, Game of Death 2, which has phenomenal fight sequences, mm -hmm. uh, is very significant in terms of uh, the evolution of fight choreography, which we've discussed before. But... On that, uh, this has been fun. It was a fun experience. I'm hoping to get down there for the next one. This upcoming Monday, they're actually doing Once Upon a Time in China. But uh, I unfortunately have things keeping me up here, nor can I drive down to Los Angeles every week. Uh, it's quite the trek. But maybe once we get next month's schedule, if there's yeah. one I find worth driving down for, uh, we can do this again. I definitely already, I definitely already looked online, and obviously the schedule's not up yet. It just goes through August 1st right now. Well, there we go. There we go. So we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, any final notes? I, I, I'm good. Right on, my man. Right on. Uh, yeah, so obviously we had a few little pauses uh, in there. No big deal. But yeah, we'll. Uh, I'm probably going to be dropping this episode first as opposed to the one we've just recorded. Sorry, once again, we've had a long hiatus. But oh. hopefully we, we get back into the groove of things. And if, if you are dropping this episode uh, first, where are you in the standings and what can people do? 
Oh, oh my gosh. Thank you for the reminder. Yes, I am still in the running for my fitness competition. I've now made the top five, but I have to get first in my division during this next round or else I'm out. So once again, the link is still on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. You can vote once every 24 hours. Actually, right now, today, if you buy votes, it's two for one. So let's see if we can get me in there. I've been floating along second. So I think the guy in first may have like bought a lot of votes. And I really wish you could see it because, uh, you know, if if he has like a million and I have like 500, uh, I don't want to uh, encourage people to be buying votes, but it goes towards a good cause. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's a, you know, the whole thing with buying votes is like uh, track, right? Where some people are on, uh, on where like Ben Johnson versus Carl Lewis. This is predating all our listeners. Like Ben Johnson's on steroids, Carl Lewis isn't. And like, you never get to, if they'd like shared the information beforehand, maybe Carl Lewis could have uh, taken a shot too. And, and anyway, that, that don't, that's a bad example. I'm glad Carl Lewis didn't and good for Ben Johnson not winning having the gold strip because drugs are drugs are bad as we've circling back to what we discovered in the letters written by Bruce Lee. Oh, nice. Nice recovery from a bad joke. No, 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 no. I was going to say nice full circle element right there. And on that note, we're going to end it. And thank you guys so (laughs) much for listening. Uh, following the podcast and whoever's voted me in the contest for me in the contest thank you and uh, I will catch up with you next week when we record sounds good all right see you good sir I'll see you later bye bye